Hey guys, before we get started, just want to say uh, there's a podcast on Ringer University called Teed Up. And I've been listening to it religiously over the course of the NCAA tournament. If you want to get smart about college basketball, listen to Tate Frazier and Mark Titus. That's Teed Up, part of the Ringer University podcast network. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio... He's a psychopath, not a sociopath. It's Andy Greenwald! Which one's worse? I'm not sure. In the case of Jessa and Hannah, who can say? It's really, it's an open question. But it, I'm glad that Girls is finally tackling the big issues in its final season. Yeah, Andy, we're going to get to Girls. We're going to get to Dave Chappelle's two specials that he yeah. dropped on Monday night on Netflix. But mm-hmm. first, we're going to talk a little bit of TV news. Ooh, Breaking t- news. Yeah, I got my, like, my Hearst hat on. Yeah. Yeah. Just like it, it looks really good. Um, we want This is a weird thing that came across the the, the the wires today, which is that the Nick has been canceled after two seasons. This actually may come as a surprise to most people who watched the Nick because they probably assumed that it was canceled shortly after the second season. Yeah, we don't want to spoil it because <laughs> uh, you should really watch the Nick if yeah. you haven't watched the Nick. But it ended on a pretty definitive note. Yes. Um, some backstory to this. It was, not, it was, I think, an open secret that it was not canceled, though, uh, in terms of in the TV community and inside the business because they wanted to keep it going to some degree. And I had heard stories that the main character of the show was actually going to be the hospital and they were going to jump time periods. Um, I saw – you remember Chris Ryan, my podcast friend and partner, when we were at that uh, Emmy party – we saw the oh, guy. We saw the god Andre Holland there. We did, and uh, I had to ask him, and he gave me. I said, "Are you coming back? Are you going to do something else with the Nick?" And he, I don't want to burn him. He did not say yes <laughs> we or do, no. We don't burn sources. We in do this not country. burn sources on this. No, that's one thing this country never does. <laughs> yeah. Certainly not in front of microphones. But he uh, he raised a finger to his lips and gave a sly did smile. Did you go full Devin Nunes when he told you this? And <laughs> I, you straight to this head of Cinemax and said, ran, do you know what Andre Holland just told me? I ran immediately to Carrie Antholis. <laughs> and I was like, you got to get rid of the leaks. Um, Speaking of so, them. So I thought this was going to happen. I was really excited. Yeah. I heard that they were reaching out to other directors maybe to do like a pull of Soderbergh. And it was very exciting. And even uh, Soderbergh himself, I think, had said in the past that part of what he wanted to do with Nick and, and to some extent, the girlfriend experience, which was uh, Lodge Kerrigan and Amy Simons directing and writing a series based on his film that he had yes. made about 10 years ago or something, um, was that they could basically act as like incubators for talented directors. Yes. That you could take these like ideas and he could set up maybe a uh, infrastructure for how to make them. And the Nick famously... It was pretty much a one-man shop. Yep. Uh, Soderbergh uh, directed and shot them, yep. and shot and, them in such a way that even the actors were sort of like we're just like burning through pages. And, and he edited it himself, yeah. like yeah. often in the back of a car that was taking him back home, so he could delve into the other culture that he was getting engaged in that night. That, does he still do that? Does he still publish that at the end of the year? Like everything he's oh, watched yeah. and read. His last media diary is awesome. I mean, every year he does a media diary of everything he's written, watched. Or so, everything he's read and watched. So anyway, all this is to say it's a huge bummer for two reasons. One, because The Nick is one of our favorite shows the last few years and I think really has fallen out of the conversation. I mean, it, it's fallen off the air. Yeah. But it is an astonishing two seasons of television and absolutely gripping and on the highest possible level of of direction, conception, production. Um, and it's if you can handle the syringe in eyeball moments, it's just really, really entertaining TV. The other reason why it's a bummer is that I don't know what this says about Cinemax. Um, 
a year ago, I would have said Cinemax had three of the best slash most promising shows on TV. Banshee was coming to an end. The Nick was in, you know, in purgatory, but potentially coming back. And Quarry was about to debut. And you and I loved Quarry. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't think it has any of those shows. Right. I don't, and I don't... Outcast too, seems to be in some sort of limbo. Outcast was the... The Kirkman the, show. The, yeah, and a few, I think if not all of the episodes were directed by Adam Wingard. Who's a, a director I, I like quite a bit. He did Your Next and The Guest and uh, the Blair Witch reboot, and is working on and has Death Note coming on Netflix. Yeah, so it, it's and so in this the statement today about the next cancellation, Carrie yeah, Antolis said, I can, "I can read the statement. Let's yeah. just let's let Carrie talk for wow. Yeah, uh, after a critically acclaimed two season run, the Nick uh, of the Nick on Cinemax, we will not be going forward with additional episodes of the series, despite our pride." and affection for the series, mm-hmm. uh, as well as our respect and gratitude towards Steven Soderbergh and his team. We've decided to return Cinemax to its original primetime series fair of high-octane action dramas, many of which will be internationally co-produced. So this is aside from Andy and I just sort of eulogizing the Nick, which I we pretty much did when it went off, when the season ended. This is the first story that I remember hap- coming out of a, of a network basically being like, the water's old too deep. That's exactly right. That's very, so very So every other place well is just said. like, content, content, content. I buy, buy, buy. Mm-hmm. And now you're Cinemax saying like, you know what? This is tough. It's tough to get these, to get Clive Owen. It's tough to get Steven Soderbergh. It's tough to pay for production. And even though, I mean, there's an, there's an interesting quote at the bottom. Your critics love the show. And I can't tell you how, how many studio executives around town have told me it's their favorite show on television. But it did not find an audience at the level that Banshee did. Even though, in terms of an HBO show, mm. the Nick is a modestly priced show, in terms of a Cinemax show, it started to throw our budget out of whack. So that is, in a nutshell, that's not, you don't hear that from Netflix. You don't hear no, that from a lot of places. That's really interesting. Um, two reasons. One, because um, we live in a world where Halt and Catch Fire, which is watched by the two of us and maybe six other people, uh, gets four seasons. Um, the financial mumbo jumbo at this point has become so obscure, but also so expected mm-hmm. that we don't really think things are going to get. It's canceled. all about putting content in a library, right. future, blah blah blah. Yeah. The thing that may have thrown things off here, and I have heard this from Cinemax executives before, is that the Nick really did um, speed things up to a degree that they may not have been comfortable with. And what I mean is, the Nick was developed for HBO, and you look at that. Obviously, it's Steven Soderbergh, it's Clive Owen. HBO has a notoriously slow, some could say, considered. Um, development process. Mm-hmm. They only program on Sunday nights, so there's only so many slots for shows to be on. HBO wanted to make The Nick with Soderbergh, but they were like, look, it's going to take a minute. And Soderbergh was like... That's no, not how I work. That's not how I work. Yeah. This needs to get on the air. And so they they did some, some things, and they got it on Cinemax, which is why everyone was sort of surprised that it was on there. But that may have sped up their timetable for becoming a player in a way that they weren't comfortable. Now, I know that they have other cool things in development. I know Jonathan Tropper, who did Banshee, has a couple projects coming. Some I don't know. I think one of them has been announced. Um, but... It's a very interesting thing just as fans of TV and watchers of the industry to put a marker on because you said it exactly right. This is the first time a major player – and Cinemax is the little kid's sister of um, HBO. But a major player has said, uncle, like we kind of can't play in those waters anymore. Yeah, or – and even I think that – another thing that they're saying here, the other part of the the statement that's interesting is – Getting back to what our roots are, quote unquote. And I do think that they. Which is me watching it at 11 p.m. on a Friday night in middle school. Yeah, right. <laughs> because if you just God bless. switch back and forth on the channel a hundred times, <laughs> it'll unscramble. Um, no, it's this idea of going back to like uh, genre fair and that, that they can get a baseline audience for stuff like yeah. Strike Back that um, maybe 
um, doesn't require Clive Owen or to require, you know. Right. I mean, that is this, that is a, a smart marketing spin. And, and if you, th- you look at it, like these networks that are part of um, packages with bigger networks. Yeah, Sky um, Atlantic or wherever else, yeah. Well, or specifically, let's take an example of um, AMC is the big fish and Sundance Channel is the little fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rectify was developed for AMC, but it is a much, much smaller and slower show. It goes to Sundance. So now AMC has Walking Dead, it has Preacher, it has these noisier things, and Sundance has the smaller shows. If Preacher was on Sundance, it would sort of throw everyone's expectations out of whack. So I guess it makes sense in terms of brand identity, but we mourn the Nick, and I also, I don't want to prematurely mourn it, but I am concerned about the fate of Cinemax as, um, not. I want them to do genre. I just want them to do big genre, like Here's a, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Because you remember how, like, when it was, there, there, and it's long been rumored, and I think every six months or so, there's, like, a spike in, in, in activity about this story. This idea that they're going to do a Deadwood movie to, like, oh, wrap yeah. up Deadwood, and that one of the reasons why it was, like, you knew Deadwood was truly dead because they raised the the set that they had built mm-hmm. wherever it was in outside of in British Columbia or something. And you know, the Nick obviously they shot two seasons. They had the same backdrop uh, mm-hmm. in t- turn of the century New York. If they were considering, let's move it to the seventies. Let's do it to the to the eighties. Let's move it to the fifties. Are you asking? Is this question going to be about how would they do it with me not in New York anymore? Because <laughs> no. I've thought about that. I mean, how would they? Uh, w- was it probably maybe a more expensive proposition? For them to say, we need to build all oh. new sets, you know, get... Well, period shows are really expensive. Yeah. That's that's And especially if you shift period. Well, right. I mean, I think that everything they had done... I mean, if you remember at the end of the second season, like, the, the basically they were moving the hospital and the new hospital burned down. So they could have created a new sure. space. Yeah, I guess so. But, yeah, whether it was going to be the, the 20s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, who knows? But it was it would have been costly to do, no question. Um, but... Uh, but it's a bummer, but it's also interesting to see what it what it foretells about where we're headed. Yeah, we'll see where we are a year from now. Talk to you then. Yeah, okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs> no, let's talk, take a quick break from our sponsor, and we will be back to talk about Chappelle. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sonos. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is turn on music, and it completely changes the atmosphere of my home and immediately puts me in a better mood. Get the classical going, or maybe if I need to get myself revved up, I throw a little ACDC on, a little bit of early NAS, whatever. It doesn't matter. Even with my speakers on full volume, I could never hear whatever was playing throughout my house, and that was a problem until I got Sonos. Sonos is a wireless home sound system that fills your home with pulse-pounding sound. All you have to do is position your speaker where you want it, plug it in, tap the app, and you can stream anything you want via Wi-Fi. It's so easy to set up, guys. I cannot stress this enough. Just like that, no wires, no tricky programming, no kidding. With the Sonos app, you can control everything from anywhere in your house. You can play a different song in the living room, and then play a different song in the bedroom, and then play a different song in the bathroom if you're so inclined. Or, if you're having a party, put one song on everywhere, and you control everything. You get your favorite music streaming services, your entire collection of downloads, and audiobooks and podcasts, Sonos lets you play it all. So you can enjoy all the sounds you love anywhere in your home. Just go to Sonos.com to learn more. That's S-O-N-O-S dot com. Okay, in light of our conversation about content, 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 Mm. about growing libraries, uh, this week we had one of those, uh, you know, big Netflix moments where they've, they've obviously like decided to invest a lot of money in stand-up comedy. Victor Luckerson wrote a great piece for us uh, earlier in the week about Netflix's investment in making stand-up a conversation driver for the network itself. More and more as this stuff happens, as as um, 
as these stories come out about Netflix is cut a check to this person and that person, and this is going to Netflix. I'm just like, this is just really smart because people just keep talking about Netflix. Like yeah. the more and more, like their ability to transition from a, a distribution platform to a, 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 a content library or to a, 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 a content maker, I, I, you know, whether you think it's good or bad for the business, it's actually very impressive. Well, it's also taking a, a very big page out of the Amazon playbook, which is, you know, at many points over the last 20 plus years, Amazon could have been like, well, books really aren't selling the way they were last year, and maybe we should reconsider, or we could start selling like air, aerial drones and yeah. wet wipes and right. literally everything. The more we grow, the more our investors are happy at the potential profits from that growth, and we can just keep going, 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 and there's never any bottom. Right. I mean, Amazon is famously never really turned a profit. It's just this incredible magical unicorn pony that keeps jumping into different fields and making money off of them. Sure. That is kind of what Netflix is doing. And I think you're right. I mean, you cannot, everyone wins, I think, when you cannot actually accurately quantify what you get in terms of PR for a $40 million investment in Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld or Chappelle. Or, or in however. this case, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Right. Now, one of the things that, so they've already decided they've, they've made inroads into uh, television. They've made in, what we consider television. Um, and in some ways have changed the paradigm of how we process it because they've introduced this all-at-once binge streaming model. They've started to get into uh, film financing and distribution. Mm-hmm. Netflix originals. There's uh, War Machine. This Brad Pitt movie coming out uh, soon. That's sort of loosely based on Stanley McChrystal, I think. Um, and now they've got this incredible toehold in the stand-up comedy game in a place where you know Comedy Central and HBO have traditionally been the powers in that field. Now Netflix is trying to debut one comedy special per week for the rest of 2017. That's so crazy. And I have to say, like I, I, I. I very into stand-up comedy when I am when it is put in front of me, but is not something I seek out and is not something I tend to think a lot about. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it has had with everything from Split Sider to some of the documentaries like The Aristocrats and stuff like that. That has sort of gotten into the inside baseball of comedy. It's become its own industry. Oh, podcasts, sure, and all pod- of them, yeah, right, and, and crashing, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But just through Netflix, I have found that like there's this time during the day on Saturday, in between whatever I did during the day and before I go out at night. Because I go out every Saturday, brother. Dude, your life sounds fire right now. Um, and I'm like, well, what should I should I watch something? And I'm like, nah, I'll just watch Probiglia. Oh my god, I miss your life. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all a way of saying that this this anyway, net- that's all I was saying. You don't have kids yet. So. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> and um, I'm barren. Uh, <laughs> that's all a way of saying that that was the way that I had been processing Netflix stand-up specials up into now is this sort of like ambient, oh, that's cool. I'll just yeah. I'll watch a few minutes of right. this. It's Jen, there for you. Just check out Jen Kirkman for a few minutes. Why right. not? Chappelle's different. Chappelle is appointment viewing. Chappelle is, it's 9 o'clock on Monday. These things went up. Let's start watching them because he hasn't put out a stand-up special in 10 years. Yeah, he hasn't done anything in 10 years. Yeah. Chappelle hasn't done anything official. Like He doesn't have anything on his discography since no. 06, basically. And then at SNL last yeah. fall. And he has SNL last fall. Uh, it's announced that he's got these two specials coming. Uh, it's sort of it's about as big of an event as you can have in, in stand-up comedy. So what did you think of he's got two specials, The Art of Spin, which was recorded in LA, and then what was the Texas one called? Um Deep in the Heart of Texas. Deep in the Heart of and, Texas and, that he recorded in Austin prior to the LA one. Yeah, the Texas one is 15, 2015 right. about. You can tell because of the Ebola jokes and the Ray Rice comments. Uh six the other one is sixteen because he's talking about the OJ show being on right. the air. Right. Um I watched them both. I found this fascinating, entertaining, funny, perplexing. Here's what it made me think about. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. One word. Jandek. 
like the obscure folk troubadour. Jandek, yes. Yeah. Now, I was about to say some people Why may know. People, can you Most it, people uh, might not know yeah. that since 1975, records under the name Jandek have been appearing at random intervals in like indie record stores across the nation for 40 years. No one knew who it was, why it was, what it was. They would just show up. Yeah. And someone was just carrying on a conversation with himself and with music and with the greater world. And the music was just appearing. And it often was not in step with anything else. It'd be like it just a blurry existed. photograph on the cover. Of a dude. And dudes at Kim's, at Kim's record store yes. would be like, this is the truth. And here's what I'm, in, in the way I'm relating this to Chappelle is, since Chappelle went off the grid, uh-huh. he hasn't really been off the grid. He has been mostly touring right. and, sh- and w- doing walk-ons at Caroline's or the improv, just showing up, dropping in, doing sets that, from what we've heard, anecdotally could go on for hours, where uh-huh. he's just smoking cigarettes and sitting on the stage and talking to people. He... He has the music in him, right? He yeah. has the freak folk in him. He is the the he is the prince who was promised of stand up comedy. I mean, he started doing this in DC when he was sixteen. He is the natural. Yeah, the first OJ story that he tells, of which yeah. are basically the framework of the of the LA special. Yes, is I'm eighteen in Santa Monica, and it hasn't happened yet. And and, and the nothing haven't yet. Happened and yet. he meets Nicole. So. He, what I'm saying is he – this is a compulsion for him. This is his, what he was born to do. And clearly, judging from these specials, he was prepared to bring to come back. He was documenting these things. Mm-hmm. Who knows how many of them were taped? Who knows how many were considered to be released? Who knows what kind of an archive he has? Um, what was interesting to me about this is neither felt particularly ready for prime time. Neither felt polished. Neither felt like a statement. They did not feel like – to use to continue the metaphor, they didn't feel like albums. They felt like – just dispatches, just mm-hmm. showing up from a post office box, in this case from in Ohio. And through that lens, I thought they were great because they are this insight into this totally unique, totally compelling comedic mind. Um, if it sounds like I'm couching a criticism in there, I am to some degree because I wish there were statements. But I feel like at this point, again with the Jandek thing, he's not that dude. Yeah. The parts in both specials that I found kind of cringy really stemmed from when he was dancing around things that are a little hot button and then he was stop dancing and he would just cannonball into them mm-hmm. and then he would duck away and laugh at himself and do that move that he does where he just sort of yeah, drops his mic, and, mic he's like, his I, and runs away he's yeah. like I started I can't believe I did that I'm just playing and he mentions Chris Rock um, who's there, who he's very close with in I think both specials mm-hmm. Chris Rock hones the knife blade you know Chris Chris Rock doesn't takes four or five years off and then he tours and when he does a special which he's doing for Netflix he's on tour now it is a sniper bullet. And if he wants to say something about what Chappelle wanted to talk about, which was who gets who, who gets rights first, who earns your pain, like who who suffers more. Oppression Olympics. Oppression Olympics, which would have been an amazing sketch on Chappelle's show season 10. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chris Rock bit would have slayed with a through line, right? It would have just landed. Chappelle is just, he's just working the speed bag. And some of, sometimes he misses it. And that is part of the process. Yeah. So I found that fascinating in the way that I find artistic fumbles and stumbles and success is fascinating. I did find myself missing that hammer. But he walked away. He didn't want to be the statement artist yeah, anymore. That's I think why he, he would rather away. I mean I can't pretend to guess his psychology, but I think that he would rather see his art played out in a continuum rather than in these uh mm-hmm. in these like in a vacuum bursts. The thing that you're talking about, there's a lot of, you know, and this has been in a lot of the reviews, positive and negative of the shows, is just highlighting the fact that uh Chappelle's Attitudes, whether or not they're the persona of him mm-hmm. as a comedian or him personally, his attitudes towards uh, the LGBTQ community 
is uh, sus. You know, it's it's a little suspect. It's a little behind the times in terms of like where where a lot of people are at. And it's also if you're if you're a homosexual person, if you're a trans person, you you might find it quite offensive. Um, the stuff on his show. And when it was Chappelle's show, mm-hmm. was delivered. I think that there were all these veils of irony, and there were these and characters, character, yeah. and there was story, and there was obviously it was working. Even if it was, it was so rule breaking for sketch comedy, but it was still happening within a, a Comedy Central televised half hour. And that's not there with this. This is direct from the source. You know, this is direct from Chappelle, and I think he is well aware of. Of, of what people's reaction might be mm-hmm. to what he's saying. And I think that that actually fuels like his interest in, in, in provoking and cut, confronting people with their, their biases and what they're sensitive about. Um, aside from all that, you know, I, that to me is not um, a disqualifier from finding him funny, frankly. Um, I agree. And, you know, maybe I have the uh, luxury of saying that because I'm a straight white man. But I will say this. Uh, he is as acerbic about himself as he is about anybody else and uh, is kind of finds his mirth in his own failures mm-hmm. as much as anything else. And just as somebody, like, if anybody who's ever spoken in public for more than 30 seconds, just the mechanics mm-hmm. of what he does is, um, it's like watching an amazing musician or athlete. Yeah, It is un- incredible to watch him tell a story. I, I mean, the way that he tells stories, the way he does dialogue between characters, this timing, his physicality. When to hit like a, hey, you know, it, like it's un, his rhythm is yeah. is really unparalleled. And I and I wonder. And, I, and I, next time we have a someone who is a stand up comedian come join us in here, I'd love to talk to this person about it, because one of the things that I was feeling about watching these specials is you may not like these shows. First of all, if you're offended by these shows, I can see plenty of reason why someone might be. But the second comment would be. If you if you don't like these shows just because you didn't or for, or for whatever reason, it might be because you're a fan of things that are funny and you're a fan of jokes and you're a fan of laughing, but you might not be a hardcore fan of stand-up comedy as an art form. Because I feel like what he is doing is something pure and closer to the bone, you know, in the way that he stepped away from all those other things because this is what he wanted to do. What he wanted was to go on stage and be challenged and challenged back and to say the things that he cannot and be, say. And be fucked up if he's on stage uh, yeah. and be and, or be completely on if he's on I mean, stage. Yeah. This is he is one of the comedians who all comedians embellish, all comedians make up stories. But for some reason when he's telling these stories about the lesbian parents at his kids private school or um the really the one really weird whiff misfire of both specials, the 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 gay Hollywood producer backstage at the oh, Oscars. Yeah. When Chappelle's telling us these stories, I don't believe them for a second. I just don't. I don't believe these people exist in this way. Right. You know, Usually when you hear people talk about, like when Chris Rock was talking about his wife, or apparently in the special he's recording now when he talks about his divorce, like you know it's embellished, but he's talking about his life and people. I think Chappelle is creating things out, out of whole cloth to try them out and to say the things that he can't say. I mean, he lives on a farm in Ohio with his three kids and, the, and his wife of 16 years. He doesn't go out. Really. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do those things. He's testing it out and playing it. And 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 I, as as someone who, I mean, I find this whole thing, I do find it fascinating, the mechanics of stand-up. And I think that um, watching him do this is its own kind of entertainment. It's just not always the same bang for the buck as a tightly sculpted hour, as Louis's new hour or Seinfeld's new hour or, you know, Mulaney's new hour. Right. I mean, I, I think that what, what you're seeing is the explosion of interest in stand-up and the interest in the mechanics of stand-up and the industry behind stand-up 
is going to just draw way more eyeballs and it's got a lot of people interested in it that weren't interested in it before. And those people are like, hey, man, what you just said is fucked up. Mm-hmm. That's not cool. Like what you just said offends me or offends yeah. my, you know, whatever. And stand-ups are like, that's the point. You know, the, the point is that like that's – and a lot of people don't go to stand-up to be like confronted or offended. Yeah. They are like, I want to I'm gonna laugh. I want to – two drinks. You and... make me buy two drinks and, I, and, and, I, and you make me laugh. And it's, it's transactional. It's transactional. And this is, but but when you get outside of that, and stand and standups are like, no, I'm the the mirror of society, or like I have mm-hmm. to have complete unchecked freedom on stage to say whatever is going through me, and and to challenge people's notions about what is and isn't funny, and what is and isn't tragic, or anything like that. Um, that's where you're going to get this dialogue happening. That's why we're talking about this instead of like the mechanic. I mean, nobody wants to hear us be like, my favorite joke is this, but. That's why we're talking about that instead of oh we're so happy Chappelle's back. Yeah. These are my I, five favorite jokes. I mean I I have to say my I my favorite parts weren't necessarily jokes. My favorite parts in them were the ones that felt the most um, uh, revealing or most mm-hmm. bare. And and I would say the when he talks about the person who threw a banana peel at him, when he talks about taking his son to see Kevin Hart and this extended bit that really there's no punchline. It's just his own humiliation and his own uh, feeling of. You know his his own competitiveness in the yeah in the, he brings it up sphere. about Key and Peele too and about Key and Peele and um but for me the most interesting part by far you know I, going into it I didn't try try not to read reviews but I did I did know that the L A one was quote unquote the tighter one um but I was, wasn't really sure what that meant in the second one in the Texas one midway through he gets a little rattled or someone yells back at him when he's talking about the word pussy mm-hmm. and then he just sits down and he asks for a smoke and everyone throws cigarettes at him. And then he just goes on this, goes on a journey that involves Lil Wayne in a CSI episode. Yeah. And, and no, I'm not going to repeat any of that on this podcast. <laughs> um, and that's the weirdest. That's the bonus episode. That's the weirdest part, right? Yeah. Like when he's just, okay, let's do this, you know? Well, that gets back to Jandek. That gets back to Jandek, which is that really what I wanted to talk about. That gets back to this idea of, is he, he is a, he's somebody, but Jandek never was called the comic genius of his generation. You know, Jandek never had a show that changed how well, people thought about comedy. Well, Jandek didn't have a pop, like he didn't have the, right, he didn't right. revolutionize Jandek music Jandek would and then be, disappear. It's, it's almost like if Bill, if Dylan just never came back from the underground after yeah. he got in a motorcycle accident. <laughs> Basically. And, or if Dylan just released Jandek records every once in a while, but didn't come out and do the damn thing. We didn't um, officially do it, so I apologize. I cut you off. I caught you off here because I did watch a little bit of. We were maybe going to talk about the Gerard Carmichael special. Mm-hmm. It's on HBO called Eight. Um, I checked out a little bit of it. I'm a big fan of Gerard as a person, as a comedian, uh, his sitcom as well. And it was interesting to watch it because his his thing is to kind of be that guy as yeah. well. He likes to. He revels in being the comedic, the young comedian equivalent of Slate.com, basically. Like, he begins the special by being like, I don't care about global warming. I take long showers because I think we're going to be fine. And come on, it's exhausting to care about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, that's his thing. And he stands there, and he's incredibly charming. And he has, you know, his effect that he, that he, that he does on stage. And it's challenging, you know, and that's sort of the word that, you, that is used to describe him, but he's also somehow more cuddly, you know. But the other thing you take away from it, and I mean this as no slight at all to Gerard, who I think is tremendous, tremendous talent, is at the beginning of his career, is just how much more experienced being on stage Chappelle is. And it's unfair to compare any comedian to Chappelle. I yeah. wouldn't do that to anyone. But, you know, 
just the things you're talking about, just that, 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 that just the sheer ability to make funny out of nothing, to physically create comedy. That's just that's that's the more amazing thing to me about it. And I but I to bring it full circle, I do think it's kind of an outlier in potentially Netflix's strategy because these are glimpses of a superhero, but from a year and two years ago. Mm-hmm. And the real benefit to me of doing a show every week would be the potential topicality of it. I mean, you could if you're if you really have this bang 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 system yeah. of recording them, you could be getting people joking about you know th- this this uh, healthcare Hindenburg like next month. Yeah, and that would be a plus. So you, instead of instead of having Paula Dean jokes <laughs> in 2017, exactly. Like here's the thing: like life comes at you fast, man. Yeah. But when he's just joking about Ebola, I was like, oh yeah, we were really worried about that. Yeah. Like that really did happen, and now that seems almost quaint. Yeah, I know. Um, let's talk about. Uh, I wanted to touch briefly on girls because we haven't really touched on it since you had a conversation with Lena a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago after the American Bitch episode, um, and then there's been a couple weeks since then. And I can't remember a show that has divided opinion among people I know like this tell in me. a long time. Sketch out. Tell me the battle. Tell me the sides. Uh, there's. I think there's three. It's really good. Like as good as it was in the first season. Mm-hmm. There's. It's really good, but it doesn't make any sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And then there's it's bad. Wow. Um, and which camp are you in? I Private? think I am in between the first and the second. Mm-hmm. I don't. I always find girls an enjoyable watch. Mm-hmm. So it's always like the aftermath that is like when it starts to unpack. I did think that um, it is pretty much abandoned its relationship to its characters more or less in a lot of ways. Like. I, and, and part of that I know is that, and if you listen to Jam Session a couple weeks ago, they had Sarah Hayward who wrote, who's a writer for girls, and she was talking a little bit about the switching of the episode order that they did. Oh, I didn't that. And how they moved um, the finding out about the pregnancy was supposed to happen before American Bitch, but they flipped the episodes. And I oh. thought that would have made American Bitch make a, made a lot more sense. I know you loved that, but I thought it, it would have explained a little bit about why Hannah was the way she was in that episode, which was very sober. And very uh, interesting, yes. But I, I think that they made the right choice in terms of not just taking away from the impact of this basically standalone episode because it would have interrupted a cliffhanger more yeah. or less. You I can know? see both sides. Um, yeah. But that's a, that's very interesting. So, uh, yeah, I think I am. I I always enjoy girls pretty much at a steady hum. I think that it it is strange to be spending this much time. Like this is a strange plot line to take up the last few hours that it's going to be on the air. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm, I kind of, I can't, I have to reserve judgment on it until we figure out what's going to happen. Last seasons are hard. Last seasons are especially hard for shows that thrive on being about potential, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is, it's not a sitcom. It is a, but it is a half hour. It's a half hour, whatever that means these days. And it's got jokes. It's got jokes. Um, but it's essentially about characters who are a mess and trying to figure it out, which means the stories could be could have been about anything as it developed. And, you know, we've talked many times about how that was one of the appeals and ultimately frustrations about the show because, you know, we don't even know how these people knew each other at a certain point or why they knew each other. As shows go on for longer and longer, they, sent, they, they all of them start to bend around the framework of TV to some degree. Um, we've praised girls for that with the Jess and Adam relationship. Um but it does still feel a little odd that suddenly everyone is cresting on this wave of uh, personhood or adulthood, mm-hmm. right? Everyone is having these crises at the exact same moment. And fair enough, they're 27, which that, that sure. happened to us. Sure. I think that's fair. 
Uh, it does happen to a lot of people. But the degree that it's happening to everyone except Shoshana, who I don't I really think it's only been in like two seasons. She, she hasn't really been on the show very much yet. Um, that's been a little hard. So like the, I think one of the first times that I've ever been like, really? to the show was when uh, Hermie died the other week oh, after the other Quinn's character, character died. Yeah. I was just like, you you don't, you didn't need that double beat of the death and like then the guy dies so conveniently after giving the speech. Like, But that, even then, they do that. Yeah, yes, I it, agree with you. It, it, that was just, that was nudging it a little too far. And I, and I would imagine that Lena or Jenny Connor would agree, you know, but they wanted to set people in motion in a certain way and, and that was the way to do it because that's a TV thing. That things That's the way things happen on TV. Um, I... The pregnancy, I don't know. I, 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 I wasn't sure what they were going to do with it, and we still aren't sure. It led to one of my favorite line readings and biggest laughs of the year, which was when stoned Becky Ann Baker was like, whispers, leans across the dumplings and whispers, every time I look at your child, I will imagine my own death. <laughs> <laughs> which was maybe line of the year. Yeah. Um, and it also has, it is the ultimate vehicle for other people to project on, which I kind of like that the show has done this. I, I haven't seen that in many other media when you know if you when someone says that they're having a baby it immediately most people especially when it's a younger person everyone you tell that to makes it about themselves yeah i mean i, I and, guess and, i'm and, a little and, bit so disapp- that was that I, was entertaining I, it's not that i'm i'm not disappointed it's just that i acknowledge that the show is steering into some sincere old school tropes of of otps and yep. pregnancy which is like those are two of the the most well worn late period sitcom tropes. Well, well, the OTP one true pairing. You mean? Yeah. This is what I wanted to say. Um, I will draw. This is my line in the sand here. Please, 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 please don't put Hannah and Adam back together. I know that's where we're headed with these longing looks and these terrible movies that he somehow made in a week. Um, I that that Adam I find that and Jessa f- was like a really cool thing to have happen for the show and it made sense yes as much as i mean i know look at it i mean we're, we're talking about fictional characters right. but in terms of but for all the the permutations and 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 um you know hot yoga backflips they had to do to even have a reason for these people to be in the same room after four or five seasons that one made sense yeah and it and it felt like a breath of fresh air on the show for all the, the things the show has tried to be about um one of the for, first and foremost of them is you know people make choices and their consequences and they keep moving to go back into that relationship, which kind of never really made sense as a relationship anyway, would be a bummer because that is the, and it's the same bummer that many of these shows make. And, it, and then, and then it, it would be, it would be a little bit disappointing. I'll say, I'll, I'll end by saying this. It would be a little bit disappointing that a show that began with unfair comparisons to Sex and the City ends with another direct comparison to Sex and the City. That's that's well put. Okay, we're going to be back Monday. We're going to do a special episode about um, the music of 1997. We did an episode last year about the yeah. music of 1996, but we're in a very specific 10-year anniversary period right now for 1997 music where a bunch of albums that Andy and I love uh, were, were released in this sort of March of 2007. Yeah, so era. maybe we'll have um, on Twitter, we'll put up like a, a listening list or yeah, something ahead and, of Monday. Um, and we didn't we didn't talk crashing. So next week we got to do crashing. Yeah, we got to do crash. I think maybe Thursday next for the next re-up we'll do we'll, we'll catch up on Legion a little bit. We'll do crashing a, a little bit. Well, you're done after next week. <laughs> I, I'm expecting the full red carpet treatment in this room. Um, we'll find out who my father is. Uh, anyway, um, until then, great job. Oh, great job to you, Baranski. Great job. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks to Sonos for sponsoring today's show. Sonos is a wireless home sound system that fills your home with pulse-pounding sound. From streaming services to your downloads, including audiobooks and, what do you know, podcasts, Sonos lets you play it all. And with the Sonos app, you can play a different song in every room, adjust the volume, and manage other settings straight from your phone. So you can enjoy all the sounds you love anywhere in your home. Just go to sonos.com to learn more.